We are uh, taking a break from our Advent series. Uh, excuse me, we're taking a break from our series in the book of Acts so that we can do uh, a series in Advent, uh, a series, little mini-series that we're going to call The Heart of Jesus. And this series actually uh, will mirror the, uh, the devotional book that we're using for the season of Advent. If you haven't grabbed one of these for your family yet, there are a few copies uh, left out in the gathering area. Uh, but the book is called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Uh, and actually, this sermon series uh, has, been, uh, has been planned and sketched out by our pastoral intern, Zach. This is the, the first time he's taken a shot at that. So um, um, I'm looking forward to... Uh, he's, he's chosen the passages, and he'll preach a couple, and I'm going to preach a few. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to what God's going to do through this series. Uh, we're going to call it The Heart of Jesus. Uh, and um, our aim is really twofold. And actually, this is our, this is our aim in everything we do. Uh, we, our, our aim is always, right, that we want to believe in Jesus and become like Jesus. And that, that's our aim across the board. That's our aim in every sermon that we preach and every small group that we do and every Bible study we run. Our aim is to believe in Jesus and become like Jesus. Uh, but particularly so for this series uh, during the season of Advent, uh, we want to make that even more explicit. Um, and, and there's a principle here. And the, the principle is this. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. And I've said that before. You've heard it before. If you've been around uh, Grace Fellowship, uh, it's, a, it's a biblical principle. It comes from 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18 where Paul tells us that we, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. So the more we behold Jesus, the more we become like him. But that can also be true of other things. Those things that we give our heart to, those things that we focus on, those things mold us and shape us. And so for the month of December really for the season of Advent starting today, uh, we want to focus on the heart of Jesus. We want to look at the heart of Jesus so that we would more and more believe in Jesus. And you may think, well, you know, I've, I've been a Christian for a long time. You know, I signed that card or I walked that aisle or I was baptized at the age of eight. What, whatever that may be, right, you may think, well, I believed in Jesus a long time ago. But even for those of you who have been around the church, Believing in Jesus is still a, a daily exercise, right? We, we believe more and more deeply in Jesus as we walk with Jesus. So we want to believe in Jesus and we want to become like Jesus. So that, that raises a question. What exactly is Jesus like? I'll give you a, a few seconds to answer that question in your own mind. How would you describe Jesus? What are the words you would use? What is it that makes Jesus tick? And we want to be, we don't, we don't want to be too cavalier here. We don't want to be irreverent in asking that question. Jesus is God in the flesh. And there's much about God that's beyond us. There's much about him that we don't understand. We're finite. He's infinite. 
He's not an object to be studied. He's a person to be worshipped. So when we ask that question, what is Jesus like? We're not trying to we're not trying to pull God down or fashion him in our image. We don't want to do that. But we are safe to ask that question because God has answered it in the Bible multiple places. But there's one place in particular where Jesus actually tells us what he's like, where Jesus actually tells us what it is that makes him tick. And we're going to find that in Matthew 11. We're going to start reading in verse 25. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. In verse 25, we find this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May he bless the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of his holy word. Amen. So maybe you have heard these words before this invitation of Jesus. They're uh, certainly famous words. It's one of the sweetest invitations in the Bible. You remember the days when you actually used to get invitations to things in the mail, right? Uh, I think I can still remember like the first birthday invitation I got to my friend Justin's birthday party, I can still kind of see the, the, the little pictures and the font on the card. Don't ask me why that sticks in my memory. But there's some excitement and anticipation when we get an invitation, isn't there? Uh, something to celebrate, something to be a part of. Well, Jesus here gives us the best invitation ever. And I want to look at it this morning under three headings, three questions we're going to ask. First, who is doing the inviting? Second, what does he invite us to? And then third, why? Who, what, and why? All elementary questions, but questions that will help us to to plumb the depths of what Jesus offers us. First, who? Who is doing the inviting here? Well, verse 25 is pretty clear. It's Jesus. This is Jesus talking. But who exactly is this Jesus? He tells us in verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is the only Son of the Father. He and the Father have a unique relationship. They are the only ones who truly know one another. 
And we know from the context and even verse uh, 25 that the Father refers to God the Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is Jewish. This is a Jewish worldview. And so there can only be one Lord of heaven and earth. When Jesus talks to his Father, he is talking to God. And so what that tells us is that Jesus is the only one who truly knows what God is like. And he is the only one who can reveal the Father to others. In fact, uh, in John 1, we're told that if you want to know what God is like, just look at the person of Jesus. Jesus reveals God to us. He is the one, and he says, the only one who can reveal God to us. So if you want to know God, he has to be revealed to you by Jesus. Now let's back up just a bit and see why Jesus is saying these things. Matthew says it's at that time Jesus declared. So what's going on at that time? Well, if you were to read chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, uh, you would find lots of doubt and unbelief. Uh, John the Baptist uh, is in prison. And while in the early days he had announced the coming of the Messiah, he had announced the coming of Jesus, now that he's in prison, he's beginning to wonder, is Jesus the one? He didn't expect to be in prison. He certainly did not expect to be executed as he was. And so there's doubt. Uh, there's unbelief on the part of the crowds who listened to John and then listened to Jesus. The crowd didn't take either one of them seriously. And even just before this, in verse 20, you see Jesus denouncing the cities where he had done most of his miracles. He had performed all of these great works, and they still refused to believe in him. Jesus pronounces these woes. This judgment. So it's in the midst of all of this doubt and unbelief that Jesus offers these words. Jesus offers this invitation. Now, listen, I don't know about you, but if I have come to do a job, right? If I'm working really hard at something and it's not succeeding, like it appears to be the case in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is doing all of these miracles and, and very few people are believing in him, right? If I'm working very hard at something and I'm not being successful, I get very frustrated. Uh, I'm ready to throw in the towel. But Jesus' response is actually quite different. In the, in the midst of doubt and unbelief, Jesus turns to his Father and says, Thank you, Father. Thank you for hiding these things from the wise and revealing them to little children, to, to babies what Jesus says there. Now, um, Jesus isn't saying, right, Jesus is not saying that all smart people are lost and that all toddlers are saved. That's, that's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is that knowledge of God coming into the kingdom does not depend on human wisdom, does not depend on human achievement. You can be the sharpest tool in the shed or the brightest bulb in the box and totally miss the kingdom, totally miss God. In fact, the problem with human achievement 
and, and don't get me wrong, even achievement's not bad. We like achievement. We want to get better and better. We want to get wiser and wiser. We want to get more competent. But the problem with all of our achievement is that it can actually make us more self-sufficient, which makes it harder for me to trust God. Right? The, the problem with human achievement when it comes to our relationship to God is we have a tendency to go, I got this. I don't need your help. And so Jesus says that the way to the kingdom is not through human achievement, that even, even immature toddlers can know God. And, of course, immature toddlers is, is yes, of course he's speaking to children, but even it's metaphorical, right, for those who know their weakness, for those who know their need, for those who know their dependence. Those are the ones to whom the kingdom comes. So Jesus is the Son. Who, who is it that makes this invitation? Jesus, the only Son, who has the true knowledge of God and the one who has true access to the Father, and it's this Jesus who wants to reveal the Father to people. How does he do that? Well, let's look at what he invites us to. Jesus says in verse 28, Come to me. Who? Who does Jesus invite to come to him? All who labor and are heavy laden. All who labor and are heavy laden. These words convey something greater than just working and being tired. They describe people who have struggled for a long time under a heavy load. People who are worn down, burnt out, have reached the end of their rope. Labor, toil, that's an active word. That means you've, you've wearied yourself. You've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried to be good, to be happy, to be religious, to please yourself, to please God, to please others. You've wearied yourself. You're labored. And then burdened or heavy laden. That's a passive word. That means you're carrying a weight put there. Maybe by yourself, but maybe by someone else. You're weighed down by the load you're carrying. Matthew 23, 4, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of, these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. He accuses them of, of tying up heavy burdens uh, that are hard to bear and laying them on people's shoulders. Maybe that's you. Crushed by the weight of your own self-righteousness, crushed by the weight of someone else's expectations, by the weight of religion. It can refer to other slave drivers as well, other idols we worship, family, work, pride, sin. King David says in Psalm 38, 4, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. To all who labor and are heavy laden to sinners and sufferers, Jesus says, come. Come to me. Don't wait. Don't keep trying to soldier on. Come now. 
to Jesus. Why? What does Jesus offer? Well, he says, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you refreshment. I'll give you relief. All who labor and are heavy laden can find rest in Jesus. Maybe that's news to you. Maybe the idea of God, the idea of church, smacks more of burden than of rest. And if that's true, it may be that you have the wrong Jesus in mind. It may be that you have the wrong God in mind. That you're not listening to the words of Scripture. not listening to even Jesus describe himself. He says, come to me. But then he says something else. His next invitation is, he says, take my yoke on you. Now, wait a minute. A yoke is is an instrument of work. Jesus, you just said you were going to offer me rest, but a yoke is what you would put on farm animals. A yoke is what you'd put on oxen to make them plow in the same direction. So, Jesus, what do you mean? How are you going to give me rest if you're putting a yoke on? On me. If Jesus offers rest from burden, how can he now say, Take my, is this, is this a bait and switch? Right? Is Jesus trying to, to, to pull a fast one on us here? Well, in Jesus' day, the scribes, uh, the, the, the law experts, the religious experts, they would, uh, they would say that the way to find life, the way to, to life, was to take on the yoke of the Torah. To take on the yoke of the law. Now there is an important principle here. Just as the the important principle earlier was that we become what we behold. Here's another important principle and it's this. You will be yoked to something. Right? Each and every one of us, whether whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, however you would affiliate yourself, each of us is yoked to something. Everybody is yoked to something. The question is, what are you yoked to? And the scribes of Jesus' day would say, well, if you want to find life, you need to yoke yourself to the Torah, yoke yourself to the law. That's where where true fulfillment is. But notice Jesus doesn't say, take on the yoke of the Torah. He doesn't say, learn from the scribes. He says, take my yoke on you. Learn from me. In other words, come to work for me. That's how you will find rest for your souls, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That word learn is where we get our word disciple from. Jesus is saying, come to me, and as you come to me, learn from me. Learn what it means to live. Learn what it means to do life from me. And as you do that, you will find rest. Charles Spurgeon, a a great uh, great preacher from Great Britain in uh, centuries past, he talked about, uh, in his sermon on this passage, he talks about how Jesus' rest is is like this treasure chest that someone else gives us. And we open it and we delight in it and it's great. But then, the more we explore the treasure chest, the more we find these other hidden compartments where there's more treasure. So maybe you've come to Jesus, and you experienced that initial rest, and you didn't even understand fully why. 
But have you experienced the deeper rest of continuing to learn from Jesus, continuing to follow Jesus? It does seem odd, doesn't it? That the way to rest is to take on a yoke. Because if we, if we take all of the scripture together, particularly if we, even if we just look at what Jesus teaches himself, right? Jesus' rest is, is not a carefree existence. That's not the rest that Jesus offers. His rest is not idleness. His rest is not doing nothing. In other places, Jesus describes following him in pretty stark terms, things like taking up a cross, denying yourself, right? That's certainly not inactive. That's certainly not lazy. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that as we come to him and as we learn from him, that we may be tired, but we won't be weary. He's saying that your life won't be futile. He's saying your work won't be meaningless. He describes his yoke as easy. The word there is kind. His yoke is not a yoke that chafes and blisters. It is a kind yoke. His burden is light. Typically, in a yoke, you would have two oxen yoked together. And it's not 100% clear that this is what Jesus means, but when Jesus says, take my yoke on you, is it possible that he's on the other side? That when you're yoked with Jesus, it's a burden that is light because, well, he's the one drawing. It's like an older, stronger ox pulling along the weaker, younger ox. So are you weary this morning? Are you burdened? Come to Jesus. Receive his rest. Learn from him. And continue to experience his rest. That's what Jesus invites us to. But why? Why does Jesus invite us to this? He tells us in verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am Gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle, meek, humble, kind. Lowly, a negative term in Greek culture. It meant to be of a low or a poor condition. That's how the Lord of heaven and earth describes himself. As meek and humble and lowly. Jesus is not harsh. Jesus is not overbearing. To quote Thomas the Train, he's not a bossy boiler. He's humble and lowly. Uh, One commentator, Leon Morris, says this, Leaders and teachers have always tended to take a superior place, but Jesus has no need of such gimmicks. He is gentle and lowly in heart. In heart, in in the Bible, the heart is the the center of who you are. That's the very core of your being. So right here at the very core of his being, Jesus describes himself not as harsh 
not as overbearing, not as intemperate, not as furious, but as gentle and lowly. Friend, I don't know how you've shot yourself in the foot. I don't know what sins you've committed. I don't know what burdens weigh you down. I don't know what other masters you serve. But I know this. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. And he welcomes sinners and sufferers to find rest in him. He welcomes the weary. Isaiah, writing several hundred years before Jesus' birth, described him this way. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In John 13, we see that Jesus is the master who disrobes to wash his disciples' feet like a common servant. Philippians 2, which we read at the beginning of the service, tells us he's the one who possessed all the glory of the Father, but gave it away to die the scandalous death of the cross. remember reading the story of a student at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, She was doing ministry among the homeless population in Chicago, and uh, she was... uh, she was invited, uh, one of the, the people that she was getting to know, one of the homeless people she was getting to know, uh, invited her into his home, his little box encampment under the bridge. And after some hesitation, she, she stepped in and she says that the, the smell was nauseating, was so, was so overwhelming, it almost knocked her on her feet And she wanted to flee in disgust at what she was experiencing there. And then it came to mind that Jesus experienced so much worse in coming into our world, in coming in flesh, in taking on our skin, that his incarnation, that Jesus stepped far lower than you and I will ever Stepped and he did so willingly. He did so so that when he could take up his glory again in resurrection, he would bring us all home with him. That's who Jesus is. And that's what he invites us to. That's the one who invites you to come and find rest because he's the only one who can offer it. Precisely because he's gentle and lowly. I want to close with these words, uh, a favorite hymn of mine uh, written in the 1800s by a woman named Ora Rowan. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Not the crushing of those idols with its bitter void and smart but the beaming of his beauty, the unveiling of his heart. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now, unrivaled.
Come to Jesus. Let's pray.